Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Make sure to subscribe and check out the website, learningwithlowell.com. You'll see everything on there as well as the Twitter. And for the next 48 hours, if you are listening to this live on July 30th, you can nominate the podcast for an award. And that will be in the show notes as well, as well as the ability to leave a review. All that information will be in the show notes, so check them out, learningwithlowell.com. Other than that, let's hear who we have joining us today. Today, we are joined with Dr. Blake Bexton. He is the DARPA program manager for Biological Technologies Office. So basically what that means is he's there for a set amount of time to work through these programs he is advocating for and he's like the shepherd for him. And so in this episode, we learn about the Engineers Living Materials program, which is similar to what we had here with Peter Negan on a couple weeks ago, Advanced Plant Technologies and Insect Allies. So basically this person is really big in biology, how to use them, and he's from UT Tyler and is a fascinating person. You're going to get a lot out of this episode and learn about DARPA, the programs he's working on, and the benefits of them as well. The first question I have is, uh, as an entomologist and a, and a lover of uh, insects, though you, you kind of came about it in a, an interesting way, I'm curious, like, do you have insects that you're particularly interested in or that you find fascinating? For me personally, I love bees. I've had an airberry my entire life. But I'm curious, like, are there any that you have an affinity to? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, probably my favorite insect is the the aphid. Um, and for really a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's sort of within my insect transmission of plant pathogen space. So it's an insect that we've always worked uh, very closely with. But they're also incredibly cute when you look at them under a microscope. And I know that's really strange to say about an insect. But then they also have this just completely bizarre life uh, life stage, like the way that they move through. Uh, they're one of the only insects that has live birth, so they don't lay eggs. They actually give uh, give birth to babies, and so um, just as an interesting organism that adds something, and then as a science study organism, that's also uh, kind of a complicating factor when you're raising them or if you're trying to do genetic modification. Uh, or you're trying to study them in different ways. So, yeah, I would say that uh, just as an entire group, aphids are pretty fascinating. Aphids are like ladybugs, right? I'm thinking in the right line. Well, they're in, uh, uh, they're homopterans. So they're um, in a different uh, order than the coleopterans, like the ladybugs. But uh, yeah, I mean, somewhat close. They're um, hemimetabolists. So they kind of go through these uh, interesting life stages. They don't, uh, move through like butterflies that were once caterpillars. They okay. kind of are the same insect. They just get bigger and bigger as they molt through their stages. But they're uh, yeah 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 they're 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 pretty cool. 
Hmm. Let's kind of line up for your allied insect program. Not not to jump the gun a little bit because the the citrus greening stuff that's going on in Florida and California and a lot of the southern states like i think the aphids are the, the main vector for the disease transmission other than them i think grafting and uh can't remember the third one i think there's like three ways you can get it but i think the main one is through insects mm-hmm. that like you know yeah it's actually uh that it's actually transmitted by um the asian citrus psyllid so that's a insect that's pretty closely related to aphids um in the same in the same order uh also those are pretty cool. Um, and if you look at those under a microscope, they're neat because they look a little bit like um, really miniature cicadas, uh, closely related in that order. And so, um, yeah, they're like little versions of, um, of cicadas that jump around on citrus trees and transmit a bacterial pathogen that uh, is, is really a doomsday uh, problem for the citrus industry. Um, you keep mentioning microscope, microscopes, which kind of reminds me mm-hmm. of the one of the first times that I, I kind of realized I liked science was, um, other than just being raised on a farm, like I think most farmers are really uh, into science. Like most people don't realize that. Um, I mean, just like how they use the scientific method to like test out crops. I, you know, you like go through a country, you'll see it. But um, it's when I was looking at a microscope and I was looking at uh, the cell structure, I, I think of... Uh, I think of like plant or something and I, you could see the fluid like moving from one cell to the next like or the fluid moving inside the cell and I just thought it was crazy because you know you know you hear these things uh like mm-hmm. being alive but just being human like you can only see like the macro stuff like the computer screen or your mouse and then seeing like these really small things that you know you know we have the same stuff in our skin and all over and they're like just living little tiny lives i think that was like really evocative to me is did you have a, a similar experience that helped you trans uh, transfer into entomology or like, was there like a thing that like, like awokened your passion into this? Yeah. So as an undergraduate, I was a biology major and I always had this sense that I was going to go to medical school. I thought that was, you know, kind of the perfect track. And, um, I think my junior year uh, at Northern Iowa, I took an entomology course and, um, sort of opened up this whole new passion because we had to do an insect collection. And I realized that entomologists get to spend a lot of time outside studying the world and then also get to bring those organisms in and and better understand them in the laboratory. So there's days when you get to work outside and get some sun and uh, enjoy the world. And then there's those other days where you get to dig deep and uh, really kind of do what you're talking about, look under microscopes, uh, do DNA technologies, things like that in laboratories. So I always saw entomology after taking that class as this portal into a really interesting world of science where you could ask a lot of interesting questions and insects as a study organism really give you a lot of uh, positive attributes. So one thing is they don't have uh, backbones and uh, you know anybody that's ever had insects inside their house uh, accidentally doesn't mind crushing them. So um, you, you have some capabilities to work with insects in ways that, uh, you know, you can't do with, uh, other organisms. So you can really up the end values on your research studies. You can add a lot of data to what you're doing. And then the other cool thing is that they're super important. Um, when you look at agricultural, uh, situations or human health with mosquitoes or ticks, or, you know, a lot of these organisms that are uh, becoming uh, more and more important, 
there's a good amount of research money to solve problems that have like real world applications. And so I saw entomology as a way to kind of expand into a study organism that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then also a way that you could do work that has true applications that benefit the, uh, the world. And in my case, it's, it's agriculture mainly. Do you, do you bring it home with you at all? Like, um, uh, I think an advisor of mine in college, he would use the scientific method to make like his cooking. He didn't prove it using the scientific method, uh, which is just like his love of science as a, as a discipline. But does your, do you bring entomology home? Like do you collect insects or anything like nerdy like that? Um, not, not too much, although I do have two daughters and um, every time that they do have to, you know, do some sort of science fair project or something like that, we usually choose an entomological um, subject. And then also uh, we're just now getting, you know, to the end of the school year and a lot of the kids in the neighborhood have to do insect collections. Hmm. And so I can't tell you how many kids have been over at my house uh, trying to get me to help them cheat. Uh, but little do they know, um, I have kids and I've been a professor for a long time. So I actually trick them into learning it while trying to help them. So uh, we, we do a lot of that. But, you know, it's funny the you know, kind of applying those principles to other areas. I definitely do that. And um, my oldest daughter is 16. And a lot of times she'll be, you know, I'll be trying to get her to do things. And she's like, um, I'm not your science project, you know, because uh, she she thinks that I'm <laughs> trying to study different uh, behaviors and things like that. Hmm. The, I don't know why, but when I when I, I pictured like all the kids like running to you to like get you to uh, help them cheat, which um, it, it kind of like the way it go, like the way you like handle it made it a positive thing. But the, um, kind of reminds me of, like Socrates and teaching um, who's the guy who conquered the world, Alexander the Great. Like I. I feel like that uh-huh. is really helpful. Like, like someone who's actually passionate about what they're doing and then like, like helps kids see it. Uh, I think sometimes people, um, especially when they're young, like they may, like the sciences aren't um, talked about in a very exciting way. Um, so it's really yeah, awesome that you well, feel like that. Yeah. And, you know, to sort of add to that, um, a lot of times it seems to me looking at kids, looking at as my kids grew up, uh, there's a point when, it stops being cool, especially for girls to be interested in, you know, anything creepy crawly, whether it's insects or uh, lizards or toads or, or anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, pretty much every opportunity that I have to, you know, try to initiate that. And, yeah, I think people and kids in particular just have this innate yearning to understand things around them. And one of the big problems that I, I see now is that a lot of people just don't notice that there's a world around them. That uh, I'm certainly guilty of it. I'm sure you are, where you spend so much time looking at your phone and not seeing, you know, seeing things around you. Mm-hmm. So I do like to take those opportunities and and uh, and point those things out. Yeah, if I spend like too long looking at my computer screen, like I'll look outside and it's. <laughs> Uh, like I'll, I'll I'll start using um, video to describe what I'm seeing to my my girlfriend. I'll be like, it looks like everything's in HD. It's like I've been looking at a computer <laughs> screen too long. This is real life. It shouldn't feel this way. The well, I, actually, kind of an interesting thing is that like kids, I feel would be even better scientists than adults, which is which because they don't like they don't make um they don't they don't make assumptions. Like they always they don't assume that they know something, which is why uh, right. I don't know if you know this, but like um magicians hate 
doing magic in front of kids because kids will always figure out what the, like the, the, they're more than likely they're more likely to figure out the, the trick they'll be like oh it's your thumb that like was hiding the needle or something like that because like a, an adult will think they can figure it out like on a like this like huge level but kids won't make that as they'll be like oh it could be this this is this and they'll think of like angles that most people wouldn't which is why a lot of people when they're when um at least a lot of books and a lot of the people have been on the podcast they always recommend that you kind of try and see something from like a kid's eyes like like rip off like what you know and try and just look at it and think of it as in as weird a way as possible uh to try and like figure out what's going on which is which is interesting that like that's lost yeah yeah but you can reintroduce yeah. it to like really work at it yeah i think that's i think that's totally true um when i was at the university of texas at tyler uh which i technically still am uh, but when I was running my larger lab before I went to DARPA, um, a large proportion of the people that worked for me were undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took that approach, what you're, what you're kind of mentioning, um, and just trying to bring people in that weren't already jaded um, by, by different parts of science. And I, I always felt like it really contributed because they would ask the the dumb questions, you know, what, what are, you know, I, I think it's true. There are no dumb questions, but um, kind of the, the things that other people that have been in the field forever, are like, no, 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 it can't possibly be that. Um, if we're looking for, you know, a new insect vector in a, a system that we're brought into, you know, there's all this knowledge that it can't be this group or it won't be that insect. And then you have undergraduates who just kind of test their own hypothesis and kind of move through the system because, you know, they're not jaded by all that information um, that, that sometimes gets in the way. Like knowledge is a good thing, but sometimes uh, naivete is a little bit uh, beneficial also. Hmm. The, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this image, but I only know it is the image of Yoda doing this. I don't think Yoda's ever said this, but it, it says on the image, um, the only difference between a master and someone who's just starting is that the master's failed thousands of times more um, than the person just starting out. And that like, mm -hmm. you should just like, try not to do things perfectly, just like try to fail and fail often and learn from it. Um, for, which is kind of like how you should write as well. Like, like if I'm, I'm trying to write something, um, I will, I'll say like, my goal here is to write a really crappy first draft. And then that way, like, it just like completely takes the stress away. And then I can like make a better draft. It's not really that bad. But I think like in a similar vein, like people need to like, like, let go of fear and failure sometimes and just try stuff and if it doesn't work out like you learn really interesting things it's basically a scientific method like you, you learn from everything um absolutely but uh i, I am curious uh, to get on the topic of uh food security which i know is one of the big ones we wanted to talk about and um sure. you i think it, in, in the either in the pre-questions or when i was talking to tim that it, it was talked about how you've been to countries that have poor food security and so i'm curious like, if you could talk about a, a tell us about a, a time that you were in a different country that you know, wasn't, that didn't have the same practice of the United States. And then like, tell us what that kind of looked like. Yeah. So maybe a, a, a good sort of introduction to that is uh, some work that we were doing in potatoes and, and other solanaceous crops. Uh, there's a disease, which is actually uh, similar to citrus screening. The pathogen is a Liberobacter bacterium and it's transmitted by a different psyllid, but a similar, similar insect. And uh, the disease first showed up in uh, central Mexico, South Texas in the late 90s, early 2000s, and was beginning to spread 
pretty much northward through all the potato growing regions and tomato growing regions in Texas and then the Southwest and then sort of expanded into the Pacific Northwest as the years went on. And, you know, it was interesting because as it was spreading northward, uh, the disease and the problem was actually spreading south also. So going from Mexico down into Central America, where food security, uh, especially in remote populations, is a, a major issue. And so we started doing work in uh, all the Central American nations, just trying to you know, provide some guidance, try to understand uh, the epidemiology of how the pathogen and the insect were moving around. So we ended up uh, going into a lot of uh, remote locations and uh, you know, trying to figure out how the problem was operating. And what I found really interesting was that we were in the U.S. trying to apply pretty technical solutions. We have a lot of uh, capabilities that you don't have in you know, remote locations where you simply don't have access to insecticides or soil amendments or, in a lot of cases, watering, um, uh, prescribed watering and things like that. And so I also got to see just how a huge impact in a single commodity can really upset the balance of uh, food delivery within the population because it alters trade and has a lot of these political implications and also got to see how um, borders between countries can sometimes influence, you know, access to solutions and things like that. But um, what I found most striking when I was in, um, I think we were in Nicaragua, was I, I was expecting to go and explain to people how we could collect samples and do DNA sequencing and we were going to do all these things and got there and realized that we needed to start doing some basic agricultural instruction of you know, how many seeds to put in a single hole and how deep to put seeds and what's the uh, soil amendment when we um, actually are sowing seeds and things like that. So um, I've gotten to see both sides of it where we get to use technologies like what we talked about in DARPA and then sort of these real world situations. And so I think experiences like that have always influenced how I approach programs where you want to make uh, the technologies that are being developed accessible to the people that need them most. And that has the greatest effect. And so, um, you know, that's one of those experiences where you really, you get to see how bad things can get. And then on the other side, you get to see that a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of uh, technological understanding can help to positively influence those situations. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed being in Central America. Do you ever take, do we ever take the, either you or, you know, we as a country, do we ever take those experiences that were, while we're helping those people, do we learn things there that help to develop programs? Or is it more like we develop things in the United States and we, you know, bring it to these other countries and help them with what their problems there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, there's entire organizations within the U.S. government that do that. I have uh, good friends in within the USDA or USAID uh, that, that that is the largest part of what they uh, think about and do every single day. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The U.S. is just amazing right in the middle of uh, delivering those types of those uh, those ideas. That's good. The, um, I've always wondered to what extent our agriculture base has influenced our ability to influence other countries. Like um, I was reading that 
this isn't about what we're talking today, but this is on my mind. That I was reading that like um, there's a country in the Middle East that they have really good water purification systems, and so they went from having not enough water to having more than enough, like like more so much that they could export it to other countries, and then like that helped um, open up like trade relations and stuff because everyone needs water. Like you can't really argue with it, but or food for the for that matter. So, mm-hmm. so like it like kind of like made everyone happier with that country. Um, but I, I was wondering, cause like, I, I think like for every, when I was, at, when I was in high school, it's like for every one farmer, we fed like a hundred Americans and like, a, like 50 other people outside of America or something like that. I forget the number, but it was like, fed a, like our farmers were very, very effective at their job. But I was just wondering like to what, to what, to what extent does that allow us to, uh, have really positive relations with people? Cause we can export more than, uh, than we need, but. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does. You know, I think. Uh, probably the clearest example of that is looking at Norman Borlaug, the Green Revolution, and just seeing that, um, you know, the high yield, uh, high production corn varieties that have come out, you know, uh, through that period and continue to, to be delivered have really, you know, uh, delivered caloric capabilities to populations that were, were literally starving. Um, and so absolutely that, you know, that work is, uh, done, a lot of it's done here in the U S some is done in, in other countries as well. And we have good collaborations with, uh, those countries to develop these strategies. Uh, but yeah, the U S definitely has a positive insa- impact on delivering agricultural, you know, capabilities that I just don't think that, uh, anybody else has the infrastructure to develop the way that we have. Hmm. I wonder what we'd. This is another hypothetical, I suppose, but the uh, what the U.S. would be able to produce if we didn't have the Dust Bowl, or like, like, because that just kind of like really messed up our Midwest. Because um, before we were, I mean, we still are a huge breadbasket, but the Midwest was, a, you know, potentially even a larger breadbasket. But due to like poor agricultural practices, we weren't able to. Uh, um, I mean, the Dust Bowl happened, <laughs> so like we just didn't have a good. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and I, you know, I think uh, maybe to turn that around, I'm always a positive guy. Um, but look at the technology that we developed following those types of incidents to overcome our problems. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, that's kind of how I view those things. It's, you know, sure, negative things have happened, and um, I, I think that technology has ways to, you know, develop to start to solve those. And if you didn't have a situation like the Dust Bowl, then you know, some of the modern agricultural approaches that we have. Uh, probably wouldn't have de- as uh, wouldn't have developed as quickly as possible, and then when you look back at you know especially agriculture that's being done in uh, difficult soils and difficult environments, um, you know some of those incidences have allowed us to develop technologies to overcome challenges and um, yeah just in difficult situations. So uh, yeah, I think that you know I think some of those things were negatives at the time, but have turned out to be positives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, we definitely needed a punch in the jaw uh, at the time, so FGR could uh, move, uh, put those programs in place. Do you think cellular agriculture at all is going to play into our food security, or is ever going to be a part of the uh, the DARPA programs uh, in conjunction with like, the allied insect and uh, what 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 approach? Uh, cellular agriculture, like the like lab grown meat, like from a petri dish. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of strategies um, that are coming online that are going to have capability. Um, 
the so so yeah I, you know i don't know that that'll become part of a darpa program necessarily mm. uh there has been a little interest uh, i've had a little bit of interest and i've talked to other people at darpa that uh do like those technologies that are developing um but you know i think at, at this point those are small developing technologies yeah. and so there's certainly going to have to be that uh amount of research money and development that goes into scaling those operations. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think that there is a place for that within sort of this greater agricultural uh, need that we have. Mm. I'd recommend checking out the, uh, especially for listeners out there who are interested in cellular agriculture, as a quick uh, footnote, there's a, a conference coming up in July that New Harvest puts on. It's really good. Like all the, the cell ag people go there. Um, so if you want to, I don't know, if, if you're interested in that, like the, I'd recommend it to you. The, um, mm-hmm. Kind of moving into uh, the, the DARPA programs that you're managing, the I think I think a lot of people are unaware of just the amazing stuff that DARPA has produced for us. So like the one that I always uh, will champion and, and and prop up because it's such an obvious one is that you know DARPA like internet came from DARPA like it, you know DARPA the DARPA net is directly because um, made the internet. I don't know why I said that so cyclically, but the um, <laughs> so I'm curious. Uh, how do you see the programs that you're working on now? Uh, you know, 20 years, like maybe like five, 10 years from now, like, or, or even, I think the DARPANET was in the seventies. So that's, I don't know, like 50 years from now. Time is a weird thing, but how do you, how do you, see, how do you see these programs having a similar effect as, uh, as that? Yeah. So I think a colleague of mine, uh, Matt Hepburn, who does some of our pandemic health work within uh, the biological technologies office always makes the statement that uh, if you don't, invent the new internet, you get a B at DARPA. So, you know, I think all of the technologies that we're developing, uh, we definitely think are going to be fruitful. And then it's also funny because uh, Matt and I uh, sometimes go back and forth about who's doing the more important work. Is pandemic health more important than food security and uh, world hunger and things like that uh, for stability of cultures? And so, uh, what, what I always think about is the fact that most program managers come to DARPA with a mission to try to solve some of the world's problems within their area. And I think we all come to do that. And with my programs, uh, came originally with a focus on agricultural biosecurity and uh, food biosecurity, but then the aperture opens a little bit. So that's where you get programs like uh, advanced plant technologies, where we're using plants as sensors. Uh, which is a very targeted uh, problem-solving program, or the ELM program that I inherited from uh, Justin Gallivan and I'm currently managing. Uh, All of these programs have the ability to, uh, if they work completely, to completely change the world. But what's really great is all these technologies that we're developing have little sub-technologies. So in the case of my Insect Allies program, uh, the, the goal is to deliver gene technologies to plants using the insect platform. But the understanding within plant viruses that we're developing and some of the new strategies that will be born from that are going to be transformative in agriculture. The understanding that we have uh, around some of the insects that we're looking at uh, using as a tool for delivery of our gene constructs is uh, potentially you know, just world-changing. And then on the same side, what we're looking at with transient expression of traits in plants and uh, the way that that's going to alter some of our plant production strategies, I think is great. So um, 
you know, when I when I have these conversations with other DARPA program managers, it always comes down to, you know, arguing that your programs are the the most important, the best, and the most interesting. So uh, that's I, I think how a DARPA program manager thinks about it, and I definitely think that way about my programs. Mm. The um... I imagine they become your babies after a while, but the, the, how, how do you, maybe this is kind of an obvious question, but like, how do you develop a program in the sense of like, is it, is it you and like a team of people kind of like survey the field, uh, you get a sense of what the needs are and then you develop like a funding structure around that. Like, I, I'm, I'm curious, like how, how do you identify these needs and then build a program that, you know, is going to become like an internet um, for, yeah. for change and like change the face of the planet. It's such a big yeah, thing. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that maybe the best way to sort of explain is to start by saying that as a DARPA program manager, uh, I'm only at DARPA for a short period of time. We're all on contracts, and we all have an end date. So when you come to DARPA, uh, you usually come from whatever specialty area you're in, and you have a problem that you want to solve, and you have an approach that you want to go after. And so when I interviewed at the agency, uh, I brought a couple of ideas with me. And then when I was hired on, uh, my leadership said, well, let's, you know, go after one of these. And so, you know, DARPA is also an interesting funding agency because we're, we're definitely very mission focused. And so we're looking to solve a problem. Uh, we're not just looking for knowledge for knowledge's sake. Uh, other agencies fund, you know, those types of uh, approaches. What we want to do is identify a problem, uh, have the defense-relevant uh, reasoning behind it, and then go after it. So with Insect Allies, we were looking at agricultural biosecurity uh, bio and stability of, um, you know, an agricultural system and food supply. And so what was an approach to do that? What are some of the major problems that we have? And we were looking at <coughs> disease, uh, pests and environmental stress and things that are happening within the world of agriculture today. And um, I have a background in vector entomology and plant systems. And there's a group of you know, probably you know five or ten of us through the years that are vector entomologists. There's more now, um, but like you know 20 years ago, I think there were five of us. And whenever we had a vector problem, we would all show up at the same place and try to figure out how to break this really efficient system uh, that was delivering negative traits to plants. So with uh, Insect Allies, we thought, what if we turn that system upside down? Instead of delivering negative traits to plants, could we deliver positive traits? So as we were developing the idea within the office, um, I have a team of uh, researchers that uh, help me and we also reach out and talk to all of the experts that we can get our hands on uh, to find out, you know, where exactly the technical barriers are and what do we need to do to overcome those. And then we sort of set our sights on developing a program based on what are the barriers we're going to have to get past and why is it DARPA hard, as we say in the building. We want things that, um, you know, really push the envelope of difficulty and would uh, essentially be transformative if if they work. So uh, the development of the program takes a lot of time. We're very thoughtful and introspective about what needs to be done and how we can line that up. And then we, you know, get to a point where we get approval from the agency to put out a broad agency announcement. And then we get the best researchers uh, in the world to come together to solve the problem. And, uh, and then we are off and running and 
like I said, we have a short time uh, as a program manager at DARPA. And so we want to get these things going as fast as possible and move towards the goal as efficiently uh, and effectively as we can. So Leonard da Vinci, he was, uh, he's born out of wedlock. So at, at the, that time, that meant that you couldn't go to school normally. And so he had to basically mm-hmm. have an entire like anti-education that was just him figuring things out for himself. But that's Leonardo da Vinci. Like that's why he's so well known because he would you look at things in a way like you know a child would, and not with uh, expectations. And even you know he would write he would like have a notebook of things that he want he'd want to learn. But I think that idea that you have to like look at the positive. You know, like great uh, the Dust Bowl happened, but we learned a lot of things from it. Or there are these uh, vac- there's these insects that can pass these pathogens through what would it look like if it was positive? Like, what would it look like if it was a, a positive thing? I think that's a, an incredible thing that, uh, and an ability that you have that I think uh, more people should probably pick up on because, you know, the difference between someone who thinks they, as like the quote goes, like someone who thinks that they can do something and can't do something, they're like, they're both correct. Um, it's like if you, right, right. Yeah, if you think you can turn it into be a positive, um, then it, you probably can. And, it, you know, you have the funding in the back and the, uh, and the, the program to do it. But um, so how, uh, just look, like narrowing down on the insect uh, program, um, uh, how, I guess, like, as, like, a brief, like, synopsis, like, how's it going so far, and um, where, like, how, how far do you think it's going to take before we, because, I mean, just the idea that there's going to be so many different breakthroughs from this, this one program, I think, I, I see your point that it's going to have, like, some really huge impact, uh, but, like, how's it going uh, so far, and then how do you think, it's going to be in the next couple of years. So it's, uh, things are actually going really well. Um, the way that we uh, also design programs at DARPA is to make them phased. So you go through phase one and make it through a gate and then you move on to phase two and then you get through a gate and you move to phase three. Um, and in the case of insect allies, our first phase was 12 months and we were looking for people to, uh, genetically uh, engineer a virus to deliver a transient trait into plants. And so we were looking at a single virus with a single trait and then utilizing a single insect and delivering that to a single plant. So it was all single, 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 single. Mm-hmm. And um, the teams that are working on it through phase one did fantastic, uh, were uh, very diligent in the work that they were doing and passed through the gate into phase two. And we just had our mid phase two. So we're nine months into our second phase where they're sort of scaling that up a bit. So having populations of insects that are moving or or groups of insects into groups of plants and moving multiple traits, uh, multiple gene uh, expressions uh, into the plants of interest. And so uh, they're doing, they're, they're, they're hitting their marks and moving forward. So, you know, I think, I think we're on course to be successful within the program and develop this platform technology that can be built upon um, to, to utilize some of these genetic technologies and plants that we don't uh, quite have great access to right now. So the way that I see it, um, you know, it's, a, it's a success within DARPA. I, I, I need to, sh- to, to get to the end, but I, I think we're on course to get there. Mm. So. Do, is, do you like go out and you're able to like visit these things? Is that like a part of what you do? Or do you sit like in an office and people like send you reports on what's happening? Uh, both. 
so we uh, do quite a bit. We're uh, also a, a different agency in that we are very active in our management. So we have monthly status reports where we have call-ins and all the researchers tell us what they've done and what they've accomplished and what the goal for the next month is and how we're moving uh, forward. And, uh, and then we also go out, we get to visit, and I take uh, every opportunity I can to take my office director or leadership at the agency to show off the technologies that uh, are being developed and get to go see the researchers in person. And then we also have events in Washington, sometimes even uh, at DARPA and our DARPA building, where um, we'll actually showcase some of the technology and uh, bring it to uh, Washington so that we can show. And, you know, that's a really useful piece of what we're able to do within a program like this. Uh, when we got to the end of phase one in Insect Allies, we were able to showcase some of these technologies and we were able to invite other government partners over. So folks from State Department, USDA, and uh, USAID, uh, just all over the government really show what kind of technology is being developed so everybody understood the Insect Allies program. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely don't just sit in a uh, in an office and, and, and stare at a computer. We get out and we see and we uh, also have the opportunity to get some feedback on the research that's being done. You know, the other thing that you have to remember is that this is uh, this is the public uh, public dollars. This is tax money, and so we want to make sure that you know the uh, taxpayers are definitely getting their money's worth, and we're developing technologies that are ultimately going to benefit our country and national security. So uh, we want to get out there and make sure that it's happening. Hmm. It's it's really it sounds really smart. I, I, do you did like you figure? I imagine that's just like a DARPA pipeline of like having that pro that uh, conference and then like bringing people in so they can see it. But it just seems like a really smart thing to do so that all the stakeholders can see like, hey, this is actually what we're producing. It's not just like, you know, uh, uh, money going in and like papers coming out. So like, because I, I know there's a couple programs where like that's more or less all they do. Um, not mm -hmm. in DARPA, like like in a different agency that like they just look at reports. And so it's like, how, how do you get buy-in? Like, how can you see the people who are passionate about making, you know, the insects do what we want them to do or what you want them to do? Mm -hmm. If you just like, you can't read that in an academic paper. <laughs> like it's very dry. And if you can, like you have a great ability, you should teach me. But um, oh, just such a smart thing to do. The, um, the uh, So for, for people listening in who, who've been re just I think what you do and the program that you're working on, the programs you're working on um, sound extremely fascinating. And people who like, I have a background in agriculture. I, you know, I, I love agriculture. I think <laughs> I like food. I think most people like food too. Um, but at the same time, I think this type of program where you can be very hands-on is an interesting thing. So for people who, let's say like they're an undergrad or they're listening in and they're in their first degree, I mean their first job and, and, but they still love this type of stuff. How could they get into either working with DARPA or getting into working with uh, on these types of big problems? Because I think everyone, I think everyone, I think I'm going to say most people, not everyone. Some people don't care what they do, but I think the people who <laughs> listen to this podcast, they really care what they're doing and they want to make an impact on the world. And I don't think there's a larger impact than being able, or this is one of the biggest impacts you can have is like food security. So how can people in these either like in the beginning of their field or, uh, in the stage where they're looking to find a field, how can they like work their way in or like find their niche like you found to uh, make such a huge change? Yeah, so I think um, you know, there's a couple of different ways. So 
uh, when I was at the university, I ran a, a fairly good sized lab and we had programs uh, like the American Chemical Society has a program called Project SEED. And I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's basically a program to bring um, just fantastically intelligent kids into a research lab at a university when they were undergraduates and, or excuse me, when they're high school students. Um, and so we took advantage of that program to try to get kids in early. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that we brought in in that program were very interested in medical sciences. And I was able to show them that using sort of this agricultural system as a, uh, as a base, we can ask the same scientific questions and move forward because we're still doing DNA technology. We're doing uh, polymerase chain reaction. We're doing DNA sequencing, uh, utilizing these tools. But what I would actually do during that time is start to sell them on the idea that you just mentioned. How important is our food supply and what can we do um, to ensure that uh, we have a secure, safe pipeline for food that stabilizes our culture uh, moving forward? And you know, it's a big idea, but if you're working on some of the small details under that big idea, you can make a pretty big impact. Uh, and then We'd have undergraduates where it was sort of the same thing. I taught cell biology, which was a junior level class. And I would usually use my cell biology lab, uh, which I also had to teach, um, to sort of look at how students work with each other. And then I would try to attract them into my research lab to get them going. Um, and then use that same pipeline to try to explain to them the importance of the work that we're doing. So. You know, I think at all those different stages of education, there's opportunities uh, to get involved. And then, um, you know, for people that are outside of school, you can always come back um, and do master grower programs and things like that to, to make an impact in food security. But um, yeah, I think, you know, the other, maybe the bigger issue is uh, just being scientifically literate and you know, having conversations within our society that sort of push people to understand the science behind uh, the type of approaches that we're taking and just being knowledgeable of things like this, listening to podcasts like yours to, you know, gain knowledge and uh, new perspectives on things. Yeah. Are there, are there, have you found good ways? Like when people come to you and say, Hey, where are the, where are the watering holes where I can drink from the cup of knowledge? Um, that analogy actually worked. Most of my analogies suck, but the, how, <laughs> are there some areas that you point them to? I mean, like, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, actually podcast is a pretty good, uh, place. There's a lot of great science, you know, science Friday and some of the, you know, those other, uh, Canadian broadcast also has a uh, quirks and quarks, which I, I think is fascinating. Um, you know, those are, those are good ways to get knowledge. Uh, but then also, uh, actually as a matter of fact, DARPA, uh, has a podcast and there's one, uh, that you can listen to the voices, uh, from DARPA, which, uh, which has some information, but, um, you know, there, there's really no substitute for, for reading. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times there's books that I point people to that have been influential in my life and trying to sort of, uh, I don't know, organize my thinking, the way that I look at things. So, uh, yeah, usually it's reading podcasts um, and uh, other, you know, sometimes there's online resources, but uh, there, there's lots of ways to get knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the, this is kind of this is a question I was going to ask in a minute, but uh, I'll ask it now, which is what are some of the the resources and books that you tend to give to people? Oh, so well, I, I, I'm a reader, so there, there's a lot. But I would say, you know, over time, probably some of the big ones have been things like uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel hmm. by Jared Diamond. Um, are you familiar with that? Yeah, I read it. Yeah, it's pretty good. yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I sort of like that perspective of, you know, evolutionary biology mixed in with uh, human culture and things like that. Um, when I was setting up my lab uh, at the university, I sort of took an approach. There was a book by um, John Gertner called uh, The Idea Factory, and it sort of highlights the background of Bell Laboratory. Um, which was, of course, funded by, you know, the tele uh, uh, telephone giant, but gave this, you know, sort of engineering and scientific budget for groups of smart people to just try to make discoveries. And with my undergraduate lab, when I was trying to, you know, get students interested, I wanted to give them sort of an open portal, maybe with a lane, because the research funding that we had, you know, usually had a lane that we had to stay in to try to solve these things. But it sort of framed the uh, the approach that I took in in my research lab because you know that idea of just having you know a group of people that would interact with each other uh, had a budget to be able to, to kind of go and do discovery and and try to focus on uh, finding solutions to problems was uh, was pretty transformative. Excellent. I'm definitely going to check out the Idea Factory. I think you're the second person to recommend it to me. The, um, the, a book I'd recommend to you, there's two. Uh, one by uh, Walter Isaacson's Franklin. I think you'd like it, especially since you're doing a lot of like mm -hmm. community-facing things. Yeah, I think it'd be really good. And then um, Robert Caro's The Power Broker. by It's about like the Moses guy. I think you might like that. Um, okay. Those two are really good. The, I'm curious. The That's my last big question before I... I asked some rapid, the last two rapid fire questions. Uh, I'm looking mm -hmm. at my, the time I'm trying to like uh, phrase them in my head. I know I'm, but the, I've noticed like when, in my, when I was in college, like a lot of people, like when it was in the STEM, they would kind of gravitate more towards m medical. Like there, I think for every one person interested in agriculture, there was probably like 10 to 20 who were interested in, you know, if they were interested in science, it was more like the medical aspect of it. Do, mm -hmm. Is there, I think my entire life that's probably been the case. Like there's really not that many people interested in agriculture, but we all benefit from it. Maybe it's like we're like the, we've done such a good job that people stop thinking about it. Uh, but I'm just curious, like uh, what, what are your thoughts? Like, why do you think people don't think it's as sexy as um, medicine? Even though like if you feed someone's belly, you're, you're keeping them, you know, healthy and alive. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's sort of a, maybe a, I think you're right. I think we've solved a lot of problems and um, we've also gone towards, you know, this more uh, less human intensive agricultural practice. So there are fewer and fewer people uh, actually in the agricultural fields. Um, and so there are more people in the medical fields and, uh, you know, so, so that draws people a little bit more. So I think that you know, part of it is really more of a symptom of a bigger thing in society where, fewer people are in the industry, so they think about it less. Um, and we definitely are getting further and further away from, uh, you know, people actually having knowledge about where their food is coming from and uh, being thoughtful about, you know, some of the production challenges that we have and, 
the impact um, of some of the global events uh, that we're having. So, you know, I think that uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, although I do have to say, if you if you look at a lot of the land grant institutions, um, you know, here in Texas, that would be Texas A&M in Iowa, which we mentioned before, would be Iowa State. Uh, those are the agricultural schools, agricultural universities within uh, each of those states, and every state has one, um, if not more. But uh, there's some really great work that's being done, and there's really innovative things that are happening. And I'd say, you know, a lot of times, uh, some of the technologies that are being developed, um, the molecular tools and such come from the medical industry, and then we bring them over um, into uh, agriculture. So I, I don't think the two are necessarily disconnected because, you know, I think there's this generation of tools that can be utilized in biology writ large and benefits within research in medicine definitely benefit those in agriculture and vice versa. So uh, I see it as all biology. I, I think it's all good. Mm-hmm. I know when I was, uh, when I was in uh, high school, I took all the egg classes. I, um, I think I was in a, I don't really think I was in a farm town, but I guess it was. But the, um, I think at the time it was like maybe one in 30 or maybe one, one in 20, one in 30 people were directly tied to the agriculture field. And I imagine, because mm-hmm. I think the 50% of farmers are, are retiring in the, uh, over the next like four or five years. So the number isn't going to get any better. It's just going to get worse. <laughs> but uh, so I guess uh, the, uh, the rapid fire questions for you are other, I don't know, if, can public people come to the DARPA thing, like that DARPA conference, or do you have to be invited? I don't know. I don't know these things. Uh, well, so we have, um, we have events for new programs that are kicking off where we invite the uh, general public to come. Uh, those are usually, we call it in uh, biological technologies, we call those our proposer day. Mm. And so there are opportunities for people to learn a little bit more, but we also have a fantastic website where all of the programs are uh, put up and uh, you can you can read a lot about them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, the, the website is pretty good. I wish that it would go into more in depth though. But I'm sure I'm just not accessing it right. <laughs> I, uh, I I tend to read journal articles. I think it's really good. The, uh, but are there any um, other conferences that you'd recommend people check out or go to or any upcoming uh, dates in the next, like, I don't know, three to four months that you, you think people should be checking out? Uh, so I don't know exact dates, but uh, as an entomologist, I know that the Entomological Society of America meeting uh, is coming up in a few months, and uh, that's a meeting that I always try to go to because um, it's absolutely fantastic, and that many smart um, insect people in one place uh, is, is always fun. <laughs> um, and then during the summer, there's the uh, American Phytopathology Society has a meeting, and uh, that's also one that I uh, often try to go to because uh, that's where we're talking about plant pathogens and uh, and problems there. Uh, but yeah, there's there's uh, most of those large societies have big meetings, and I like to uh, try to attend them if possible. Yeah, excellent. Anyone interested in those? Check the show notes out. I'll put the dates and time so you can check them out. Is there a problem you are having that you would love help with? It could be a personally, professional, anything. But is there like something that you're stumped on that maybe a listener could help you out on? Uh, Sure. So, you know, I think we're always looking for, you know, new innovative uh, approaches to big problems that we have. And so, um, you know, I I don't know anything really specific that we're we're trying to figure out, but I do think that, 
Yeah, we're open to everything. Sorry, it's not a great answer because I, I can't really think of anything offhand well, okay. uh, that, that jumps divide. So if someone had a uh, a problem that they wanted to solve and it kind of sounded similar to what you're working on, do they just like email DARPA at DARPA at DARPA? <laughs> yeah, we have a, uh, well, we have a public, um, uh, a, a public access mm -hmm. uh, portal through the website. And so you can actually direct questions to uh, specific PMs if it's uh, something within that area. So if you're uh, looking at agricultural biosecurity and there's interesting problems or different interesting ideas, uh, you know, we're, we're working on a DARPA scale. So we're trying to solve uh, big mega problems. We're trying to think about, um, you know, how do we, how, how do we set the next generation up for um, security national security in my case that that comes down to agriculture and food biosecurity um, and then also you know some things in the area of eukaryotic synthetic biology um, that we're interested in which kind of a fancy way of saying uh, plant genetic modification and some of those new strategies so if somebody out there has the new CRISPR Cas uh, system to unveil to us we'd always be interested in hearing about that yeah, that, that'd be pretty uh, awesome. So the last question for you um, is, uh, what is a question that you do not have the answer to that, that you ponder? I don't you know, you can imagine ponders, whatever, whatever you'd like, but the, what is a question that you have that you'd love the answer to that maybe uh, someone can answer? I don't, they don't have to, like, they, they don't have to potentially be able to answer. Just like, what's a question that you have that is unanswered? <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it comes down to sort of that big, you know, how do we secure the food supply for the future? Uh, what does the future look like? And how do we meet the demands of what the world looks like in 20, 50, 100 years? Uh, so it's a combination of trying to understand where the world is going, where we're going to be, what we're going to be doing, and then how do we solve those problems uh, of the future? So you know, I, I, is it different agricultural practices that are going to allow us to meet demands? Are there new crops that are going to be available? Are we going to have to edit and alter uh, our current system to adjust to the future? Or are there new things that are going to that are going to emerge that we don't know about right now? Uh, those are the things that that I really think about. And that was Dr. Blake with DARPA, the program manager. I'm glad that all of you tuned in to listen to him speak about what his programs are involving. The future of food security is a huge topic and we got into a little bit here. So hopefully this is enough to kind of get your interest. And if you're excited to learn more, email me. I can create more content around this. It is a, a huge topic spanning like thousands of years coming to today where we have these advanced technologies. So let's, let's all do our part to help out secure the future of our food. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell Year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.